0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In the corporate environment, how many times are you reminded to be efficient, on point, and have your work in order? It's obviously a common theme, but what if you were to add a little mess to your work life? and? It actually made you a better employee. That's the idea behind the new book, Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. The book is authored by Financial Times senior columnist Tim Harford. He's also a radio show host on BBC Four, called a show called More or Less. And we welcome Tim to our airways. Tim, welcome. Thanks very much. Good to be on the show. Thank you. I would think that, that as this book has come out and you've worked on it, do you still get a few interesting looks from people about why would I want to have mess in my life? Actually,
1: what I have found more is highly successful people who are you know, at the top of their profession, tremendously productive, great professionals. Um carrying a lot of guilt around about mess and they've told me that my book has made them feel better so that's obviously my my role in life to to unburden people from their guilt (laughs) but it it is it is curious how um so so many very successful people um don't draw the conclusion oh well i'm doing fine therefore the mess doesn't matter instead they convince themselves that if only they could tidy up they'd, they'd be more effective and this actually goes all the way back to Benjamin Franklin, a right. founding father of the U.S., signed the Declaration of Independence, president of Pennsylvania, U.S. ambassador yep. to France, newspaper proprietor, all of these amazing achievements. For his whole life, he was beating himself up about, oh, if only I could tidy my desk, if only I could get my diary in order. And of course, it's ridiculous. It would have made no difference. It might have even done him some harm.
0: But it it, it feels like at times that because of how busy we are, and obviously more and more people, you know, are, are working two jobs to get by, uh, that there has to be a little bit of mess in their lives just because of, of how we are going around these days.
1: Well, I think I think that it's certainly true that tidying up takes time. And if you're going to you know, trying to decide how messy or how tidy to be—that's one of the one of the costs of tidiness—is that it it creates it costs time and energy to actually get things straight. Um, but I I also think that we we tend to undervalue um, the fact that a messy environment. I mean, both both kind of literally messy, i.e., emails everywhere, papers everywhere, but mm-hmm. also more metaphorically messy, like dealing with complicated people, dealing with obstacles, dealing with randomness. We we tend to to underrate how much good that can be doing us. It can be spurring creativity or it can just be uh, simply and practically a a perfectly functional way to get things done. And curiously, people who keep things incredibly tidy, if it works for you, that's great. But studies of office environments where things are kept tremendously tidy, you often find that things look well-organized, things look neat, but actually you may have a tremendous amount of paperwork all hidden away. You don't really know where it is. You don't really know what it is you should be doing. You're carrying around a lot of anxiety in the back of your head, but at least your desk
0: looks clean. This idea to write about this, where did it come from?
1: I was originally interested in the idea of interdisciplinary work, funnily enough. I was asking myself, why is it that we Tidy ourselves away into silos the accounts department won't talk to the marketing department, the anthropologists won't talk to the economists and the economists won't talk to the physicists and, and, you know, the New Yorkers won't talk to the Angelenos, won't talk to the Princetonians. What what is it about all this? Um, And that was the starting point. But then I, I branched out into all kinds of different forms of mess. So um, randomness in David Bowie's recording studio, uh, improvisation in the speeches of Martin Luther King, um, messy environments for children. And, of course, the, you know, the straightforward mess of having an overflowing inbox or having an untidy desk.
0: 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. We're talking with author Tim Harford. The book is Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. Maybe you are somebody that sees yourself as kind of working messy in your world. Give us a call now at 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. So, I mean, I find it interesting, that, as you lay out in the book, that there are so many elements of what we need to be successful. successful, as you mentioned, like creativity a little bit ago, that have some sort of level of of disorder around them.
1: Yes. One of the uh, the great moments for me in writing the book was interviewing the composer and producer, uh, Brian Eno, who, of course, worked with the late David Bowie. He's worked with U2 and Coldplay and all sorts of great uh, musicians. And he deliberately disrupts musicians in their working environment when they're in the recording studio working on their new album he will mess things up he will for example on the random drawer of a card he's got all these random instructions on his cards he will um, tell you know, the best guitarist in the world to play the drums and the best drummer in the world to get off the drums and, and to play the guitar and just really mess around with people like that and it's a deliberate strategy he, he says well two things one is when you're being pushed out of your comfort zone like that you're paying attention so we you know we may like things you know very routine and exact very familiar exactly the way we've always done them and that may may feel very comfortable but the mo, but we get bored right. so we get lazy and so we lose our creativity so when he stresses people out by throwing these messier elements in he gets their attention and, and that gets their creativity the other thing is simply if you're forced to try something new to start somewhere new, well, you may well finish somewhere new. So the unfamiliar uh, simply forces you to find new solutions. And that's true in the recording studio, but it's true in uh, really everyday examples. So there's um, uh, an example I discuss in the book of uh, London commuters having to find a different way to get to work uh, after the London Underground was partly shut down it, very brief strike. It just lasted right. 48 hours. Right. And what the economists who studied this found that after the strike, literally tens of thousands of people fa- had found a, a better route during the strike. Yeah. than they'd been using basically every day for their entire lives. Yeah. So it's not necessarily this very mysterious creative thing. It's just a case of if you're forced to try something new, you may discover a better way if you're not forced to try something new where well, you just you stick to your old routines you you do things in this you know, the the regular tidy procedure and you don't discover new ways of doing things
0: we had to go through that this uh, summer here in Philadelphia. Uh, ironically enough, it was the transit system as well, where, uh, 120, uh, uh, cars uh, of the rail system had to be repaired at, you know, one time. And it basically, it threw everything into a mix, but a lot of people did find alternatives or at least a new place to take a train from, to be able to get around here in the Philadelphia area. So I, I very much, uh, can, can link up with that. Uh, you talk about also the fact that that being messy at times actually will make you a little bit more resilient.
1: Yes. I mean, this is a, a, an old idea going back, I would say, at least to Jane Jacobs, the great um, scholar of how cities worked, And her observation, this is now 1962, the death and life of great American cities, a wonderful, life-changing book. Um, she said, look, um, if you're an urban planner and you're trying to get things nice and tidy on a map, um, you will tend to zone um, zone things in a straightforward way. So the the industry goes in one place and the residential uh, stuff goes in another place and the retail goes in, a, goes in a third place. And that makes perfect sense from the point of view of the map. But when you're actually at street level, that very tidy, well-organized system is actually... Uh, boring, and it's fragile, and it's not creative. So the streets will be completely deserted at uh, one time of day, and then they'll be absolutely uh, packed at another time of day because everybody is in the same industry or everyone's doing the same thing. They won't learn from each other. Um, But when you have this um, messier, more um, diverse, more jumbled together streetscape, old and new buildings, residential and and industrial and retail, you mix them all together, you get a lot more... um, Evenness in the way the street works, get people on the street all all times of day, which means it's always interesting and it always feels safe. It doesn't make any sense on the map, but um, it's a much better functioning city. And I think it's worth taking that idea and then thinking about, for example, a government um, planning a new policy or a chief executive thinking about how to run a business. There is always a gap between how things look very nice and neat and tidy on the spreadsheet, on the PowerPoint presentation, but actually they're they're gonna seem very different when you actually get to ground level. And what may look messy in theory may actually work very, very well in practice.
0: You also bring up uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. How how did that fit into this?
1: Well, I, I think some people will be aware that that speech really comes in two halves. Remember the context he, he's under tremendous scrutiny. There are, the civil rights legislation is, is going through Congress. There are debates within the civil rights movement. The TV cameras of the world are focused on him. There are 250,000 people uh, looking at him in the March of Washington, and he's he's under time constraints. And the first half of that speech is very, very carefully scripted. He stayed up all night preparing it. And it's, it's poetic, but it's not that good. And then halfway through the speech, he realizes it's it's not that good he realizes it's not quite fitting the occasion it's not speaking to the people who are actually there it's not moving people right. and he steps away from the script and he he takes a biblical um, flourish and he gets a smattering of applause people respond to that and then he doesn't know where to go after that and and the people behind him on the the steps of the uh, Lincoln Memorial know he's away from the script they can they've got the script they know he's not living from the script and behind him, the gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, who has seen him preach in uh, churches across the country, and who's seen him often talk about this dream he has, she just yells out, tell him about the dream, Martin. And so he then begins to improvise the second half of his speech, based on this story that he's been telling people in the churches, based on this much more, um, the the sermon-like style, the preacher style, and he tells them about the dream. And of course, that is the half of the speech. That we all remember. And I discuss it at some depth in the book, other speeches of Martin Luther King, and really the moment where he switched from a very, very carefully prepared speaker who was very competent, very effective, yeah. uh, but not brilliant. When, and then when he began to improvise, really under sheer pressure of time, because he couldn't do anything else, suddenly his speeches broke out of their previous constraints and really started to touch people. And of course, they contain their imperfections because any improvised speech will contain imperfections. But it has that vitality and energy. And so I, I invite people in the book to think about the role of improvisation in everyday life. Maybe when, when we're talking to each other in conversation, we are tempted to stick to routines because they feel safe. But sometimes you need to step away from the routine and really and connect with people in a, in a more honest and maybe a little bit more risky way. Um, and the same thing when we're we're dealing with companies. Very often we feel like we're dealing with people who are reading from a script. And if we feel that we're touching something authentic, although it's risky, it can be very effective. And of course, Donald Trump, uh, he's no Martin Luther King. Right. But one, <laughs> yes. one, of the, one of the reasons, there are several reasons I discussed in the book, but of course one of the reasons why he wasn't a campaigner it's because people felt, well, um, because he, he would improvise, people felt that he was speaking in an, in an authentic way. Right. No matter what fact checkers might have said about him and said, well, we, we checked and you know, this stuff isn't true. It felt true because the people who were listening to him felt that he was speaking in an unguarded and improvised way. It's very, very powerful, whether, you, whether you're Donald Trump or whether you're uh, Reverend Martin Luther King improvisation is risky, but very powerful way to communicate.
0: Well, one of the other people you bring up, which I, I found interesting because I, I, I am a little bit of a history buff, uh, it was General Rommel of the German army back in, in World War II. And, and the fact that uh, he would literally, I mean, he would just go off of orders and go on his own tangent in terms of fighting the war back then. And that was one of the things that made him a very tough opponent for, you know, various other militaries from around the world.
1: Yes. I mean, it, it was a strange experience for me writing about, I mean, this was arguably Hitler's favorite general Yeah. yeah. and the people he kept beating. With the British, and I'm British myself, yeah. and yet strangely, I would be reading about these battles, and I I couldn't help but cheer Rommel on. He he was even though you know Hitler loved him, even though he was destroying the British army, he was such an amazing and dynamic figure, and such an effective general, and he he believed that. Um, Well, number one, that war was full of fleeting opportunities. Uh, So it was a very messy process, and you just had to grab those opportunities. You couldn't necessarily prepare, you could try, but but if you stuck too closely to your plan, um, you would miss all these opportunities that you had to seize. And the other thing that he believed is um, if you acted quickly, even if your side weren't properly prepared, even if the logistics weren't quite right, even if your men were tired and you didn't have enough fuel, you didn't have enough food, you have to think the other side have got it just as bad, and again and again, whether at a very small scale just um you know ten or twenty men infantry to vast tank engagements again and again Rommel would um make a bold move that if you had been on his side, if you'd been with his army, you would have said, this is crazy, people are not prepared, it's chaos, it's a total mess. In fact, there was another German general wrote from Berlin saying, I have a feeling things are in a mess. They were in a mess. But then if you'd gone to the other side, to the French, to the British, you would have realized, oh gosh, it's a mess on this side too. And it's becoming more of a mess because Rommel is using disorder as a competitive weapon, very, very effective. And I drew some parallels with Donald Trump and also with Jeff Bezos of of Amazon. Uh, He was very, um, Bezos was very, very clear in the early days of Amazon that we're going to make a strategic move. We're not ready. Our warehouses aren't ready. Our systems aren't ready. But you know what? Barnes & Noble aren't ready either. And if we move quickly, uh, we'll do okay. And if we slow down and get everything nice and tidy and perfect... Barnes & Noble will crush us, or Toys R Us will crush us, or Walmart will crush us. He was very conscious about that, and he had been proved right.
0: We are joined by uh, Tim Harford, who is a Financial Times uh, senior columnist. He has uh, authored the book, Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, If you see yourself maybe as somebody that's messy and it actually works for you, give us a call now with your comments at eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number. How much of this ends up being an an individual philosophy that people will take and how much of this can be something that a corporation a company can actually weave into their operations well i
1: think that um if a company accepts these messy principles to some extent that is almost a laissez-faire decision so the company is basically saying look um, we are not going to try to micromanage you. We're not going to try and organise uh, every minute of your day, or tell you how to run your calendar, or tell you how to organise your desk. We're going to let you, the employee, um, take control of those decisions. And one of the one of the pieces of research that I really changed my view on a lot of things while I was writing the book was um, done by two psychologists, um, uh, Craig Knight and Alex Haslam where they basically were examining the effects of clean desk policies which is a fascinating study right. they got people to sit in these various office spaces that they would designed and and do some tasks like sort some email do some paperwork just regular kind of office tasks and what knight and haslam found was um first of all that a super minimalist office people didn't seem to like that if it was really kind of bare and there were no distractions people weren't super comfortable, but much more powerful as a finding was that actually whether the office was, you know, w- you know was full of soft furnishings and pot plants or whether it was minimalist or not,
0: right.
1: wasn't actually the issue. The issue was, did people have control over their space? Right. So if you were a neat person, could you, you know, could you make it neat? If you were a messy person, could you make it messy? Or would somebody else come along and change everything for you? And when they found that when people had control over their space, they got loads done. They were happy, comfortable, productive. Um, but when the experimenters came in and rearranged the space and said, "Oh, I'm afraid you you know you can't have the pot plant there. You can't put your poster there," right. and they would they would change things. Um, people got very resentful, and it was, really, it was all, r- r- multi-dimensional resentment. So they hated the experimenter, they hated the task, they hated the space, they hated the company, <laughs> they hated everything. And it was just because they, their autonomy had been threatened. And funnily enough, Haslam and Knight have done this sort of work in um, old people's homes as well, in nursing homes, and they found, I think this is a little speculative, but they believe that if you give residents in nursing homes more control over how the nursing home looks, you might get a much messier space because, I mean, these are very old people, some of them have dementia, they're not professional designers. Um, but if they have control over the space, actually their, you know, their mental health improves and their happiness improves. So a, if a magazine uh, you know, photographer were to come or an interior designer or a Steve Jobs were to walk in, they might say, well, this place is ugly, it's messy, it doesn't work." It's not properly designed. But for the people who are there, it's their space. They controlled it, and right. they're happy. And that's that's important. There is a story about Steve Jobs um, and his interior design ideas uh, in the book as well, which I, I found quite interesting to discover um, at Pixar. The famous story about Steve Jobs, who was the majority shareholder at Pixar and who had a lot of influence over the, the Pixar headquarters, right. coming up with this idea that uh, basically the whole company was going to share this um, pair of of bathrooms. There's going to be one big pair of bathrooms (laughs) in the middle of the space because um, that's serendipity. Everyone will come together and they'll all all mix together. And, and of course, serendipity is very important in a creative company. Um, But then it was pointed out to him by a consortium of pregnant women that, look, we actually, you know, we, we need to go pretty often. Maybe we need to go two or three times an hour. And if we don't have a bathroom... Close to us
0: right yeah
1: spend our whole time walking to and from the lobby and at first jobs was very resistant to this he had his big idea and he didn 't want he, you know, he didn 't want these pregnant women to spoil it and then he thought for a moment and he did something which I mean Steve Jobs has this reputation for being a control freaks control freak yeah but he he said no okay you're right i 'll find another way to foster serendipity and the Pixar headquarters now have plenty of bathrooms and there it's an it's an environment where superficial – I mean, the design is beautiful, but if you actually go to the offices, it's full of this you know, chaotic riot of different ideas because everybody's desk is designed like a Disney castle or a, you know, a Hawaiian paradise or a volcano or something. Yeah. It's, it's, it's chaotic, it's messy, but it's a very creative space that respects the autonomy of the people who work there, which is the most important thing. It doesn't matter if it, you know, if it doesn't look like a magazine shoot. What matters is, do the people who have to work there every day, do they feel that they've got
0: control? So gone are the days of uh, everybody meeting around the water cooler. It's now meeting around the bathroom, or at least in some places it is. But this
1: is the idea, but you know, I'm not so sure that the shared... Human uh, need yes. to urinate is really right. the best way to express um,
0: serendipity, <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you on that. I think there are better ways to be able to to handle uh, one's business, uh, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, we're joined by Tim Hartford. His book is Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives, 844-942-7866 is the number if you'd like to join in and ask a question. Uh, I guess the the, the next question is, is, where do you qualify yourself? Are are you somebody that is more of a tidy person, or are you a a messy person? And and potentially, how much have you learned personally uh, from this in writing this book? I've learned a few things about myself.
1: One thing I've learned is not to tell my children to tidy their rooms, because it doesn't work and it just (laughs) creates arguments. That that was my generalization from this research by these two psychologists. But one of the things I've learned is um, I think I'm a naturally tidy person, uh, if you went to my kitchen, for example, you would say, this is a tidy person. You know, right. He has a tidy house. Everything's, you know, everything's been put away. Um, but, I, but I would always ask myself, but how come then my my desk keeps getting messy? I like the idea of a tidy desk. I would try to keep my desk tidy and then it would just get messy and messy and messy. And I couldn't quite understand why. And writing the book made me realize that you know, there's a time and a place for everything. And some projects are intrinsically disorganized and create mess as you're working on them and and other projects you can be tidy so if i mean if you're cooking food it's going to be messy while you're doing it and then it can be tidy when you've finished but many work projects like writing a book took me five years to write this book and i was doing other things as well but i've been working on this book for a long long time um that's a bit like cooking a meal that lasts five years. Of course, it's going to be messy most of the time. Sure. And if you if you tidy up and you try and put everything in its proper place, what you realise is, well, hang on. In my in my kitchen, everything has a proper place. The knives go in a particular place. The glassware goes in a particular place. But in my in my work environment, there's no place for. Um, you know this research paper that just came in that's on one particular subject, but there's this other research paper that came in that's on a different subject, and then this is to do with a book, and this is to do with a radio series, and I'm working on the book this week, but next week I'll be working on a radio series, yeah. Oh, and and, you know, and this is a bill, and and it all, it all comes in, and actually, um, a little bit of mess on the desk. I don't, I'm not in favour of hoarding and you know craziness, but um, a messy desk is often just a very straightforward practical way to organize quite a big flu, uh, flow through of, of paperwork. And there's studies that I discuss in the book of people who keep very, very tidy desks, whereas people who, who pile things up, they yeah. called the filers versus the pilers, find that the pilers are actually completely on top of their paperwork and often have a you know, much um, better ratio of, they, you know, they know where things are, they throw, they throw stuff away regularly, um, they use their archives, whereas the people who actually create elaborate filing systems very often don't know where things are, right. have huge, huge piles of paperwork they should have thrown away, but they haven't thrown away because they put it into a filing cabinet immediately they got it. It's not necessarily a functional way to organize a desk. It looks tidy, but it's actually not necessarily for everybody and not for me.
0: Wish you all the best, uh, Tim. This is a great book. Thank you very much for giving us your time today. Thanks. Great to talk to you. All the best. Tim uh, Harford writes for the uh, Financial Times, senior columnist. And the book, by the way, is Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.